today's passage is taken from the book of Luke chapter 20 from verse 9 to 19. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruits of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away, empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He, still, he sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the here, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyards to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then, what is the meaning of that which was written, which is written, sorry? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests look for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. And it's a real privilege and a pleasure to be back in Fernie Hill. Uh, after all these years of, well, what seems like years anyway, of uh, lockdown and isolation, it's just wonderful to be together. Despite the fact that we still are under some restrictions, I'm sure we'll agree that uh, it's still worth it uh, to be to be together again. And I really do enjoy your fellowship every time I come here. So thank you. I'm not going to thank you for the parable that you gave me to to speak about because uh, I think it was mentioned at the children's talk that it's a really difficult one. I have to say that in 25 years of pastoral ministry, I have never preached on this parable until now. Uh, so, and that's only because I'm forced into it uh, by, by you. And that's absolutely fine. This is God's word. It's all God's word. And um, I, I hope that as we go through it together, that we can apply some benefit from it there's always benefit in God's word I am so pleased that when the passage was read that you read verse 19 as well uh, I don't think that was meant to be read in the in the sheet but uh, it, um, it is absolutely key to our understanding when you read the Bible uh, I don't know if you're anything like me and I hope of course I hope we make Bible reading a daily habit and if you've got out of that habit then maybe this is a great opportunity to get back into it. But when you do read the Bible, as lazy human beings as I am, we very often expect the Bible to speak directly into our world, don't we? Uh, and if it doesn't, then we tend to just skip it and then go on to the next bit that does directly speak into our world. Do you know what I mean? Uh, there are some passages in the Bible that do 
you know, Paul's writings, for example, when he says, there is now no, no condemnation to them who are in Jesus Christ. And that's us. That's us. As we come to that passage, and it speaks directly to us. And we, we get uh, immediate benefit from that. Not every passage in the Bible speaks directly to our world. You have to do some homework. And this is one of these passages that you have to do some homework. But when you do, there are rich rewards. And that's why I'm really glad that the next, that's the first thing that has to happen is that verse 19 gives, it gives exactly the sense of what the passage is all about. Jesus was speaking to a specific group of people the scribes, the chief priests, and the religious leaders. Because as a response to hearing this parable, they were incensed. They were absolutely raging with Jesus because they knew, they perceived that the parable was directed against them. The only reason they didn't take action at that particular moment was because they feared the people. Because there was a division amongst the community. They were all, of course, a religious community. And there was a division between the leadership, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, and the ordinary people. The ordinary people wanted to follow Jesus. They wanted to listen to him. They regarded him as someone special, someone deeply significant. But the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaders, they absolutely hated him. That's what this parable is all about. They hated him. And the reason for that, of course, will I hope become clear as time goes on. The other thing that would have been useful to do by way of homework is to read what goes before the parable. Jesus has just entered into the temple, the temple that was that was such an important location for again the religious leaders of the day. And but they had turned it from being the house of God into being a marketplace. And Jesus was not afraid to make his authoritative feeling known by driving out those who sold animals for gain and profit. This didn't go down well with the religious leaders. And then in verse 20, in chapter 20, the beginning of this chapter, his authority was challenged. They asked him this direct question. By whose authority do you do these things? And very subtly, in a very subtle and clever way, Jesus turned that question on to them, back on to them, by asking about John the Baptist. And he said, "Why, John the Baptist, what about his authority? And uh, of course, that put them to silence because they knew that the people, they revered John the Baptist, even although he had been dead for some time. So what do we make of this parable then? The parable about the owner of the vineyard who planted a vineyard because it's in that context that Jesus tells this story. 
And the story was directly directed against the religious leaders. You might ask, well, what does this have to do with us? If it's 2,000 years ago, a different context, different culture, different community, it's hardly 21st century Edinburgh, is it? Well, I hope that the relevance and the application of Jesus' story becomes clear as we uncover the original meaning. See, what we're doing is we're doing a bit of homework to try and find out what did it mean to the people then? What did it mean when Jesus told the parable in the first place? And then, as we uncover that, then we discover that there is application, I hope, to where we are today, even in modern 21st century Western, in the Western world. There's always application in the Bible for every generation and for every culture and for every era. The key to this passage is the Jewishness of Jesus. The Jewishness of Jesus. We have to always remember that Jesus was born not just as a human, but into a particular ethnic circle. At a particular time, 2,000 years ago, Palestine. He was not born in the 21st century in the Western world. He was born at a particular time in a particular place to a unique family. He came, John puts it this way in John chapter 1, he came to his own. And what that means primarily is that not only did he come to his own humanity, but he came to his own Jewish people, his own family, his relatives, because they were all relatives of one another. They were all descended from Abraham. But you remember what that statement goes on to say. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. That's what this parable is all about. It can be summarized, in fact, in these words. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. It's about his Jewishness, but his rejection by the very people to whom he belonged. And the very people who ought to have recognized his Messiahship. They, ought, they were the ones who ought to have immediately seen that Jesus was the Son of God. And yet they were the ones who put him to death on a cross. So let's go back into the parable then. Uh, by the way, if you ever want to, it's quite a fascinating uh, theme. If you, I'm sure that you're all students of the Bible. But... It opens up a whole new dimension. I'm not saying that you can't understand the message of the gospel simply by reading it. Of course you can. The Bible is accessible by everyone. But if you really want to uncover the depths of the life of Jesus, then it is so fascinating to try and understand what was going on at the time. What kind of culture did Jesus belong to? 
What kind of feasts and festivals were there? How was Jesus brought up? What kind of family would he have been brought up in? What would he have become to um, be accustomed to and all that kind of thing? And that's why I why I said before that the Jewishness of Jesus is absolutely fascinating and it does shed light on many passages in the gospel there's a classic book that's written on this and I say this just by way of of um, of in case you're uh, interested in in studying this Uh, it's a book called the life and times of Jesus the Messiah it's written by a man called Alfred Edersheim Edersheim lived couple of hundred years ago in the 19th century and he was an Austrian Jewish man who he was a scholar he was an academic and he was brought to faith in Jesus under the ministry of a man called John Duncan who was a Scot and John Duncan had gone over to Hungary as a missionary and he came to know this man Alfred Edersheim and Edersheim was converted he was he was wonderfully converted to Jesus um, under the, the ministry of John Duncan. And he devoted his life thereafter to uncovering the Jewishness of Jesus. And he wrote this book. If you ever want to read about it, it's not an easy book to read, uh, but, but it does shed light on uh, and, uh, loads of um, the life of Jesus, the kind of culture that he lived in. So this parable then is about a landowner who planted a vineyard and he let it out to tenants. And he went into another country for a long time. We would call him an absentee landlord who gets his, who gets his property, who arranges for his property to be managed by tenants. People who he hoped that he could trust to do the right thing to bring on the crop to in the with the hope that there would be a harvest as time went on as what would be expected he sent servants to take or to ask for the produce of this vineyard it was rightfully his he was the owner of the vineyard they it did not belong to them it belonged to him no doubt they had a right to some of the produce as wages but he had a right to its produce also so he sent his servant and instead of rendering to each successive servant what was due to them they ended up abusing them sending them away empty-handed refusing to give them produce in some cases, violence towards them. And at the end, Jesus tells us that the owner said, what will I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. This is the height of injustice. There is the, the owner of the vineyard was not abusive towards the tenants. He was simply asking what was rightfully his. And at the end of a whole string of refusals and rejections, each successive servant having been sent away, 
some of them having been beaten and killed, he sends his son in the expectation that they will respect him and give him what is rightfully his. But instead of that, they do the opposite. They plot to kill him because he is the heir so that they can take over the vineyard in which they work. This story is a potted history of the Old Testament. And if you've ever any doubt for that, all you have to do is read two passages in the Old Just let me read them very quickly. Two. One is in Psalm number 80. Let me just read this. Because the, the, the key word here is vineyard. That's a really key word. Vineyard was a symbol. It was a, it was a, it was, it was something that all of the Jewish people around Jesus, they would know exactly what Jesus was talking about. And here's what, uh, Psalm 80 says in verse 8, where it says, You, God, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the lands. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. However, they have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face now the other passage is in isaiah chapter 5 and verse 1 again once again the same symbolism let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard on a very fertile hill he dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines he built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes you see both of these old testament passages they speak of god planting a vineyard in and looking quite naturally for fruit and in both of these passages, there was disappointment because there was no forthcoming fruit. What you have here is a potted history of what God did for his people Israel. You, you remember, of course, way back at the very beginning, how God called Abraham from where he lived in Ur of the Chaldees. And he promised him that he was going to give him the land of Canaan. And he made several other promises. Remember the, the story in Genesis chapter 12. He promised that his descendants would be like the sand of the seashore, the stars of the sky, that nobody would be able to, to count the number of children that he would one day have. God also promised that he would be their God and they would be his people. He promised that he would give them the land of Canaan as their land forever. And then he promised this. That in your seed, all nations will be blessed. And the story of the Old Testament is an unfolding of that promise. Sure enough, eventually and through Moses and Joshua, the people did come back to Canaan. And they made it their home. God gave it to them. And then things began to go wrong. Not because God wasn't faithful to his promise, but because the kings at that time, Solomon, 
and Rehoboam and Jeroboam and all of these men after them. You remember how Israel was split into Judah and Israel and how time after time each successive king strayed away from because they became attracted to pagan gods and pagan worship and they ended up leading Israel first and then Judah later. They, they, they went astray and began to worship other gods. You remember what God did. He sent prophet after prophet, people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and these, these men who were faithful in saying to the people, look, what you're doing is wrong. You need to turn again because you're, you're going you're gonna to end up under God's wrath and his anger. You're going to end up being punished. And they wouldn't listen to them. They rejected some of them. They put some of them in jail. And they killed others. That's what Jesus is talking about. You remember that as a result of their rejection. That God allowed the Babylonians to come in. And, they were ta- and Jerusalem was destroyed. And Nebuchadnezzar took the very best of the people off to Babylonian, Babylon. And there they remained for 70 years until, by God's promise, they were allowed back into Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was rebuilt. The temple was rebuilt. And the wall around Jerusalem was rebuilt once again. And then there was a 400-year time of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And over that time, there were deeply religious people. There was no question about it, but that religion developed. Unfortunately, it became corrupt and divided. And they lost sight of the promise of God so that they put their faith in their religion rather than the God who had given them the promises. Now here's the really astonishing fact. If you're a historian, I suppose you'll be with me all the way. If you're not, then then uh, I'm sorry to give so many facts. Now here's the astonishing part. When Jesus came into the world... He came into a society that was full of religion, full of his own religion, that dated back to Moses and Abraham and the law and the prophets. And yet, these experts who knew their Old Testament, they refused to recognize the very Son of God himself. Isn't that absolutely incredible it's not because there was no evidence there was abundant evidence i mean what is your conclusion when you watch a man who is able to touch a blind man's eyes and his eyes are opened how about when There's 5,000 people and they're sitting listening to the same man and they have no food except five loaves and two fishes and he takes those five loaves and two fishes, he says grace and he distributes them to 5,000 people. I mean, come on. 
That's not just some trick. That is absolutely spectacular. And how about, and by the way, that didn't just happen once at Hamble with 4,000 people as well. I mean, you can just go through the Gospels and time after time, whether it's a lame person or whether it's a blind person or whether it's a deaf person, all he has to do, sometimes he doesn't even have to touch the person. He just says, like the centurion servant, remember the centurion servant? He said, you can go back, the man is healed. And he went back and the man was healed. And even, 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 and this is the really, as if these weren't wonderful enough, He was able to raise the dead. Jairus' daughter went back to Jairus' house. Message came back from the house saying, don't trouble the master anymore. It's a waste of time. Your daughter is dead. Jesus said, do not be afraid. Only believe. They went back to the house. He took her by the hand and he said, Talithakum. And she got up. What do you make of that? There was evidence after evidence after evidence. And yet the more Jesus lived, the more he went on, the more evidence there was, the more they hated him. They absolutely loathed him. You ever wondered why that was? You ever wondered why that was? Let me say three things about that. First of all, because they had become obsessed with their own buildings and with their own structures. Like the temple, for example. They were so proud of the temple. That comes out in one of the passages in the gospel. They were so proud of their temple. And Jesus walks into the temple, which they had transformed into a marketplace, thereby completely twisting the very purpose of the temple itself, because God had said way back in Solomon's time that this is a place that I want my glory to be. Instead of that, they had turned it into a marketplace for their own financial gain. And then they had become obsessed with their law, which they had confused with their nation. And instead of recognizing God's law for what it was in the Old Testament, they had twisted it so that it was, so that it conveniently allowed them to live a life that appeared to keep God's law. The Pharisees were experts at this. They had twisted God's law in such a way that looked like they were above everyone else. And they had deluded themselves into believing that they were actually capable of keeping God's law. And they had completely disregarded that the fact is the law is there to show us that we can't keep God's law. We're not able to because we're sinners. That's what drives us to the mercy of God. But instead of that, they'd become proud. They'd become nationalistic. And then the third thing was their expectation of who Messiah would be. They wanted an earthly king, somebody who would defeat the Romans, the Roman occupiers, someone who would restore the glory of Israel to what it once was in David's time or in Solomon's time, somebody who would gather the people, the ethnic people of Israel together. They were not ready for the servant king. 
The whole idea of the servant king that we sang about earlier on was anathema to them. They were saying that's just not what we what we're expecting at all, because Messiah is a king. But God's version of kingship was very different to their expectations. But you would still think, wouldn't you, that if they were deeply sincere men, and by the way, they were all men, if they were deeply sincere men, then they would sit down and they would, they would, they would go over their Bibles again and they would say, is there any way in which this man, Jesus of Nazareth, could possibly, could, I mean, I mean, really, we've never seen anything like this. His power and, I, and, and his knowledge and his wisdom and his intuition, the way he speaks, his insight into God and the kingdom and all, all the rest of it. Maybe he is. You would have thought that any rational person would sit down and say, well, maybe we need to reread the Old Testament and maybe we need to think again. That's what they should have done. And some of them actually did. Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus, John chapter 3, he was, a, he was an elder in the synagogue, I, I think, and he went to Jesus at night. He was the man with common sense. And he said to Jesus, we know, we know that you are a teacher sent from God. Because nobody could do the things that you're doing unless God was with them. At last, somebody with a brain Somebody who puts everything together and comes to the right conclusion. So why was it then that Nicodemus was a lone voice amongst all the religious leaders? Why was he on his own? Why, why did he take his life in his hands when he stood up for Jesus? When he was, why was that? Why did nobody else see what was perfectly obvious the only answer that I can find in the gospels is a statement that says this we will not have this man to rule over us it was blind hatred and prejudice on their part coupled with nationalism and a refusal to change their understanding, their twisted, perverted understanding of the Bible. And I find that quite frightening. Do you not find that quite frightening? Because it shows us what we're capable of, how we can, with our own sinfulness, we can actually take what God has given to us and twist it to our own convenience and create something that is unrecognizable from what it was originally. I think there are two applications of this parable. First is that that we can be religious and we can fail to recognize or listen to or obey or come to Jesus in faith. I don't know about you, but I was brought up in a, in, a, in a Christian home. I'm sure that at least some of you were brought up in Christian homes. I had to come to a point in my life where I, say, where I, say, I had to say to myself, well, 
am I a Christian? And I couldn't say, well, I was brought up in a Christian home, so therefore I must be a Christian. That doesn't work. Neither does it work to put your trust in our particular Christian traditions. We come from different traditions. You come from a brethren tradition. I come from a Presbyterian tradition. I would never dream of putting my hope in my Presbyterianism because Presbyterianism hasn't saved a single soul. Neither has any other tradition or ism that you'll find. Let me ask you a question. Are you going to heaven? That's what it comes down to, doesn't it? Are you going to heaven? Let me ask you a second question. How do you know? Who is your faith or what is your faith based in that's a really searching question isn't it it's a question that we should that that there's no harm in asking where is my faith rooted and i hope that there's nobody here who says well i was brought up in an evangelical church because that's not going to save you it's great that you were because you'll have heard the truth But that's not going to save you. You might say, well, I believe the Bible is the word of God. I mean, I've always been taught to revere the Bible as the word. That's not going to save the Bible. You know what? The devil also believes that the Bible is the word of God. The fact is that whatever tradition you come from, unless your faith is directed uniquely and only in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who gave himself on the cross and rose again for our salvation, then we're not going to heaven because he's the only one who can save us. And he will save you if you've never come to faith in him before you remember uh, by the way whatever evangelical tradition we come from is rooted in the reformation you remember the rediscovery of the reformation the five solas of the reformation before that time the church had become so corrupt they had again something similar to the jews of jesus day they had twisted what god had said in the beginning and they needed to rediscover the truth of the bible and remember the five solas grace alone we are saved by grace alone we're saved through faith alone in jesus we're saved by by the cross alone the word of god alone is the only revelation of god and then to the glory of god this parable takes us back it takes us to jesus and him alone and then the second application, I'm going to finish with this, is this, that the, the, the religious leaders of Jesus' time, they had actually created a God of their own making. That's the frightening bit. That if we allow ourselves to go down the road of our opinion and our background and our identity, and it becomes all about me, doesn't it? And I stop listening to God and I... And, and, and I, I create a God and a message of my own invention. 
what God asks us to do, what he commands us to do this morning, is to listen to him through his son, Jesus Christ. He has given us every evidence that we need that he truly is the son of God. That he truly is the Savior. He laid down his life for us and rose again and invites us to come to faith in him. So today, when we come face to face with this parable that talks about rejection of Jesus, faith is the opposite. It is a love for Jesus. It is where Jesus has drawn us into relationship with himself, forgiving our sins, opening our eyes to see his majesty, his greatness, his, the wonder of the cross. So that we leave behind our religion, whatever our background is, and we trust only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I trust that every one of you will be trusting and believing and following him and him alone. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you will take us to Jesus time and again. Keep us from rejecting him. Keep us from hating him. And Lord, create within us a love for Jesus and his word and his work and all that he did for our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.